Well, good morning. Mic check, am I on? Okay. If you have your Bibles, meet me in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 2 through 11 is where we will be this morning. Uh, my name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and just want to uh, thank you for joining in with us this morning in uh, a beautiful yet chilly Sunday morning. And those who are live streaming uh, with us, we're glad that you are tuning in. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we've been walking through a series uh, called Answering Jesus. Jesus was and is the great question asker. And as he would ask questions to people in the Gospels, he was inviting them to consider the deeper things in their lives. In our story this morning, we're seeing Jesus interacting with a woman that is caught in adultery, condemned for a crime she has committed. And even though we don't have time to deeply dive into this passage, I believe that Jesus is still inviting us to consider where we are in our lives in light of the question that's going on in this passage. So if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. If you don't have your Bibles, you can uh, look in the bulletin for the reference. And if you don't have a bulletin, feel free to socially distance, look over your neighbor's shoulder. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, it says, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the privilege to know you. Lord, I ask that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I've been reflecting a lot on the idea of grace lately. And particularly with this year, I've been reflecting on the question, 
What's so amazing about grace? Grace is one of those churchy words that gets thrown around, and depending on who you talk to, it can mean all kinds of different things. But when I see how the Bible uses the word grace, I'm amazed because grace is only given to condemned people. Only condemned people need grace, and so only condemned people can know grace. Grace and condemnation are actually inextricably linked. And that feels important in this year in particular because as we experience more and more a pronounced sense of a polarized country, it feels like there's this pressure to condemn something. Because the reality is, truth doesn't always reside in the middle ground. Truth tends to take sides. It takes sides against lies. And as we continue to feel this pressure in our polarized society, it feels like everyone is asking, are you on my side or the wrong side? That's what condemnation is. Condemnation is a legal term used in the Bible. It means to uh, render a verdict of guilty, to pronounce as wrong, to judge as punishable, much like a judge and a jury. And that can be exhausting. The standard of the weight of that can be challenging to figure out how to pinpoint that, but it's not unusual because everyone condemns something. Everyone. Even if the only thing you condemn is when someone condemns something, everyone condemns something because we all like to believe that we have some idea of right and wrong. And so we want to oppose evil and oppression and injustice. And we do so because we are made in the image of a God who cares deeply about goodness and justice. So the question is not, do you condemn? The question is, what do you condemn and why? On what grounds do you condemn something? In our passage this morning, we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. They're having a conversation on this notion of the grounds of condemnation. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the keepers of the law. They were the elite of all things that were pertaining to the Jews. And there were countless confrontations and conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees as they couldn't agree on really anything. And the Pharisees, they bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus but it's really not about the woman. Uh, we, we see the Pharisees bring this woman and they ask Jesus, the law says we should stone women like these. What, what do you say, Jesus? And in verse 6, we see that what they're trying to do is they're trying to test Jesus. They're, they're trying to, to trap him because if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then he would be perceived as undermining the law and lose credibility with his followers. But if he says, yes, stone her, 
he would be condoning something that hasn't happened in many, many years because of Roman law. According to Roman law, you couldn't do a public execution. That's why they had to ask permission later on to crucify Jesus. So if he signed off on condoning this woman, he would be signing off on something that was wildly unpopular and very unusual for the day. And he would be perceived as undermining his message of love, which made him so popular. So the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they come with what they think are his only two options. Either you'll be loving and not stone her, or you'll be righteous and stone her. You can't be loving and righteous. So either you will uh, sacrifice your righteousness in order to uphold love, or you will maintain your convictions of righteousness. Oh, maintain your convictions about love and sacrifice righteousness. You can't have both. I'm warming my hands because it's cold out here. But Jesus sidesteps all of that. He responds to them in verse 7. And he says, whoever is without sin, let him be the first one to stone her. And what he's actually doing here is he's actually appealing to the law of God to give a more accurate picture of condemnation. Because in the law, in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, it says, uh, yes, stoning for adultery, but uh, if you have malicious intent or a false witness, you are just as guilty and worthy of stoning as the accused. And so what Jesus is doing here is exposing their hearts in the matter. Because according to the law, adultery was a two-person act, okay? And they brought the woman and the lover supposed to be brought in, but they failed to bring him in. So ultimately they leave because they didn't want to deal with the ways that they too stood condemned in the moment. So Jesus, he turns to the woman and he says, has no one condemned you? Because according to the law, you needed at least two witnesses in order to raise an accusation and everybody was gone. So this woman acknowledges Jesus as Lord and says, no one. And he says, neither do I condemn you, go and from now on, sin no more. He says, I do not condemn you and sin no more. Or as the New International Version says, leave your life of sin. He does not say, I do not condemn you, so do whatever you want with your get out of stoning free ticket. He does not say, I do not condemn you, and I don't care what you do with your life. You do you. What he's doing here is that he is reestablishing her righteousness, her right standing with God on the foundation of grace. He's essentially saying to her, you're guilty. You are guilty, but I don't pronounce you guilty. You're guilty, 
but I'm inviting you to a guiltless life. Only those who are condemned can experience grace. I like how Paul Tripp talks about grace. He says, grace means that we are not held to our worst moment or cursed by our worst decision. Grace means we are not held to our worst moment or cursed by our worst decision. So I want to talk to the person that's really feeling utterly condemned right now. You're here and you know the feeling all too well about condemnation. That you hear the question of Jesus, has no one condemned you? And, and your instinctive response is, yes, of course I'm condemned. Even if nobody else is around me, I condemn myself. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you have done something that you dare not speak in this public space. And you cannot imagine that a truly good God could ever love someone like you. And I just want to tell you, there are no exceptional sinners. We often treat church like it's about a relatively good person talking to relatively good people about how to be relatively better. And if you're not a relatively good person, then you're not welcome here. But that is not the gospel call. The call of the gospel is Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That none of us have arrived, that we all stand under the promise and truth of Ephesians 2, that it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of anything you can do to earn it so that no one can boast. As the songwriter says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And what that means is God has more grace than you have guilt. Who I wish I could get a face mask amen right there. So come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Now I want to speak to the, the person kind of on the other side of all this. Your struggle is not with self-condemnation per se. You, you actually feel the condemnation of this world. You feel and see all the wrongness. You, 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 you look around and everywhere you look, your, your own life, maybe your family, politics, healthcare, race relations, anything, you name it. And it feels so wrong and it makes you so angry. And you agree with the apostle John when he says, come Lord Jesus and restore all things. Truth does take sides. It takes sides against lies. 
And we should cry out against evil, sin, injustice. And I wanna encourage us while we are feeling the conviction of truth that we remember the beauty of grace. And we allow that to calibrate our hearts. So let me ask you one question to that end. Does your truth telling outpace your repentance? Yes, tell the truth. Yes, see the wrong. But are you more aggravated with the sin and wrong of others than yourself? Because if you are more aggravated with their sin than your own, you are in danger of being like the Pharisees that were eager to condemn without realizing that they stood just as guilty before a righteous God. Repentance is acknowledging your own sin and surrendering it to God. And I see within myself, I'm more aggravated with the world when I have lost touch with my own sin. So I say again to you, there are no exceptional sinners. What's so amazing about grace? Grace doesn't just set us free to do whatever we want. Grace sets us free to truly love God. And we're not entitled to that, we're indebted to that. As the songwriter says, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Grace constrains us to love God. Grace constrains us to renounce ungodliness. And it enables us to see ourselves in the world as we should. I come from a family of five. And my parents and my two siblings, they all wear glasses. And I'm just waiting for the day that my eyes give out on me. But in the meantime, I like to ask people their story of how they came to needing glasses. The stories are always fascinating to hear the different progressions and the frustrations to coming to realizing that they needed glasses. I remember a friend of mine, Brian, I asked him his story. And he told me that there was never a day that he knew that he didn't need glasses. His eyes had always been so bad and he didn't realize it until he got glasses. And when he did, it felt like the whole world opened up to him. He said he, he could make out the, the, the leaves and trees and he could see the, the blades of grass for the first time. He could make out details in people's faces in ways that he never had before. And I remember asking him, how did you not know you needed glasses when you couldn't even see leaves? And he told me, I didn't understand what blindness was until I had the right eyes. I didn't understand what blindness was until I had the right eyes. 
when he could see rightly, he could interpret rightly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When we receive the grace of God, it means that when the condemnation as rightly so falls upon us, we're able to stand because we are on a sure foundation. May the grace of God give us the eyes of God so we can see ourselves and our world rightly. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. You are a holy God that expects holy people, and we fall short. Lord, thank you that we have this blessed assurance that you are ours. And we receive grace because we stand condemned. Thank you that you do not pronounce us guilty so we can love you as we should. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.